as uh, Charlie said, I, I come from England. And what he didn't say is that every day is Thanksgiving Day. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have one day a year. No, that's not true. I wish we had a day like this. It's great. Canada has a second Monday in October. I don't know why anymore. I know why the third Thursday in November. But uh, on the second Monday of October this year, my wife and I spent the whole day on an airplane, so we didn't uh, enter into the spirit of it very well. Uh, but it's lovely to, to, to celebrate Thanksgiving uh, here with you. It, of course, is a wonderful Christian truth that lies behind the principle of thanksgiving. In everything, give thanks. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, and he gave a reason for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Not thankful for everything, but in everything give thanks. Meaning even when you're in a situation that uh, is not good, you can't thank God for the situation, you thank him in it for what? For himself, his presence, his enabling to meet the needs of that particular situation you might be in. And uh, so it's a, it's a great day for everybody, except turkeys, of course. Let's turn again to Luke chapter 4. And I will read it again. Uh, I know I've read it already, of course, but I think it's good to read it again and to be familiar with the details here. Last night I talked about what the devil wants of us when he tempts. This morning I'm going to talk about what God wants of us when he tests. Same Greek word can go either way and applies in both cases here. And Luke 4 verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned to the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. At the end of them, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. I'm not sure he's telling the truth then, but anyway, as he said, so if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. 
And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And you will know from our previous sessions that is a punchline of this whole narrative. And Jesus, full of the Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. At the end of that 40-day period, he returned in the power of the Spirit. And that's when he began his ministry. And there's a movement in these 40 days from fullness to power. And you have the combining of two very different agendas. The Holy Spirit who led the Lord Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted and the devil who was there to tempt him. Two very different agendas. One agenda was to weaken Jesus. The other agenda was to strengthen Jesus. One was to be destructive. One was to be constructive. One was to disqualify him from his ministry. One was to qualify him for his ministry. One is called tempting. One is called testing. And the very things that the devil would tempt us with are the very things God tests us with. The Greek word here is the word perazo. And it can equally mean to tempt or to try or to test or to prove. Finds expository dictionary of New Testament words, which tends to be an authority on these things, uh, defines it in all those ways depending on its context. And the Amplified Bible for Luke 4 verse 2 says, For 40 days in the desert he was tempted, tried, and tested exceedingly by the devil. Same word in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word or equivalent, is the same. Uh, you may remember in Genesis 22, it says uh, there in verse 1, this is when uh, uh, God tested Abraham, the NIV says. And I'll come back to that story a little bit later when he was to offer his son Isaac in sacrifice. God tested him, the NIV says. The King James says, after these things, God did tempt Abraham. Same word, same event a different perspective. And uh, God, of course, does not tempt. We know that because James 1 verse 13 says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. That is, God never leads us into sin. But he does test us. He allows us to go into Close encounters with the evil one, you might say. Close encounters with the devil to test us in order to strengthen us and to build us. The word test has a couple of meanings, doesn't it? I mean, you can have a test at school, and a test at school means you pass or you fail it. Or you can have a test with your doctor. And a test with your doctor is to make a diagnosis, 
to uncover what lies down below in order to bring about healing. This is not a, a testing, do you pass or do you fail? This is a testing to make a diagnosis what's really going on in your heart. And often it is the, it is the tough situations in life that expose what's going on in our hearts. And this is what the father is doing with the son here. Because although, of course, we know he was the perfect man, Nevertheless, he didn't have an easy ride through life, and the father put him through the testings and the, uh, and the tribulations. Tells us in Hebrews 5 verse 8 that Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered. And this would be back when he was young. We don't know what happened in the, in the silent years until he was 30. But there was suffering that went on because Hebrews tells us that's where he learned obedience through his suffering. And uh, these two perspectives that uh, are, are here, tempting and testing, are one event, but two objectives. And we looked at the temptation by the devil last night. I want to look at the testing by his father this morning. And we look at this, of course, because there will be parallels in our own lives. God will put us through similar processes and he's tested here in three areas verse 2 says he ate nothing during those days at the end of them he was hungry that's an understatement obviously and it was at this point at the end of them the devil said to him if you are the son of God turn these stones into bread Here's the first test, and we'll spend this session looking at this one, and then tomorrow morning we'll look at the next two. And the test here was that the father tested his attitude to his resources. What I mean by that is that having been led into the, into the desert by the Spirit and deliberately left without food for 40 days, his resources have been exhausted. Apparently, if someone goes on a hunger strike, which occasionally people do, it's a sort of non-violent way of protesting and resisting, presumably, to bring out a sort of pity and mercy on the part of those that you're protesting about, uh, when someone goes on a hunger strike, they apparently usually die after 46 days. Sometimes they can last longer, up to 70 days. But at that point, after the 46th day, the fat in the body has been depleted, that the body begins to mine into the muscles and uh, vital organs and into bone marrow until life is no longer sustainable as the body basically eats itself to find the sustenance and the resources. 40 days is getting very close to the limits of starvation. No wonder the Amplified Bible says 
he was tried and tested exceedingly. He's been brought to the extreme. And at this point, when his body physically is eating itself for sustenance to stay alive, it's at this point the devil faces Jesus with a choice. And the choice is this. Either you trust your father who brought you here not to have forsaken you and that he will meet your need before it is too late or you can manipulate your circumstances and meet your own need by turning these stones into bread. This is a situation that God sometimes brings us to. This may be as extreme, but God may well lead you and me into situations where we feel we have run out of the needed resources to do what we believe we are intended to do or be what we're intended to be. I have sat with many people, and I've known it in my own experience, and I will talk about this in a moment, but I've sat with many people who feel the demands made on me and the resources available to me do not connect. And so the temptation is to manipulate your means to meet the demands that are made on you. And I want to talk about this in, in three areas. I want to talk about spiritual resources, where sometimes we feel spiritually just exhausted. We know what is required of us, but I, I cannot meet that. I don't have the resources for it. I want to talk about emotional resources, where we often feel exhausted there, and I want to talk about material resources as well. Let me talk first, about, first of all about spiritual resources. Do you ever feel spiritually exhausted? You just don't have enough? Where God has made promises to you, or you feel he has, or there are promises in his word that apply to all of us, or specific things you sense God has said to you, and you believe them, yet they're not happening, they're not coming to pass. I told you the story of Abraham last night. And I'm going to go back to Abraham as an example of this this morning as well, because after all the shenanigans we talked about last night where Abraham had produced Ishmael and then eventually 25 years after the promise God had made to Abraham when he was 75 and Sarah was 65 which was impossible then anyway eventually after 25 years of waiting God gave them Isaac but then when Isaac was growing up in Genesis 22 and verse 1 it says Sometime later, God tested Abraham. 
And here's the test. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Not just that. But the son you waited 25 years for. And I promised him to you. And you eventually got him. Take that son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Take this boy that has been the result of the promise I made to you and put a knife into him. Can you imagine the crisis that was to Abraham? I mean, at 75, he was, he was as good as dead, and Sarah was worn out, and they tried for 10 years, and eventually manipulated things, and out of dedication to what they knew to be the will of God, by their own mechanisms, produced Ishmael, to the maid Hagar, Abraham fathered him through Hagar, the maid. We talked about it last night. And then 13 years later, God spoke to him again. I'm going to give you the son this time next year. And it says on the very day that God had said Isaac was born. This is the background. 25 years. Whew, we've got the son. Now we don't know how old he was. You know, artists, you sometimes see a kind of two-year-old type of boy that's kind of... But he was bigger than that, I'm sure. He was big enough to carry the wood up the mountain for the sacrifice when they went up Mount Moriah. Probably a teenager, I don't know, none of us know. And now God tests him and says, put to death every promise ever made to you that's wrapped up in this boy. Now, why did God test him at this point? Was he just being awkward? <laughs> You know, just for the sake of it? No. Here's a clue. Did you notice the deliberate mistake that God made when he gave this instruction in Genesis 22? He said, in verse 2, God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I'll tell you about. Did you notice the deliberate mistake? Take your son, your only son. Abraham might have said, excuse me, God. You just called Isaac my only son. He's not my only son. I have two sons. I have Ishmael and I have Isaac. Well, God knew that, of course. So why did God call him his only son? It tells us in Galatians 4 and verse 22. Let me read it to you. It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, meaning there was nothing unusual about the birth of Ishmael. But his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. In other words, there was something unusual about the birth of Isaac. When Ishmael was born and the local gossips got together and said, hey, there's a baby in Abraham's household. 
Really? Yeah. Wow, he's old, isn't he? Yeah, he is old. Well, who's the mother? Uh, the maid, Hagar. Oh, really? You mean Abraham and the maid got together? Yeah, nice juicy bit of gossip. But it's perfectly explicable. It happens, an old man, a young woman, it works. <laughs> Nothing unusual about that, he said. But when Isaac was born and the local gossips got together and said, hey, there's a, another baby in Abraham's household. Really? Who's the mother this time? Sarah. No, no, not the grandmother. Who's the mother? No, no, Sarah's the mother. What's the explanation? God did it. The result of a promise, as he says there. In other words, Ishmael can be explained in terms of what Abraham did for God. Isaac can only be explained in terms of what God did for Abraham. It was a result of a promise of a work of God. Because you see, when Abraham t produced Ishmael, what he did in the light of Luke 4 was this. After 10 years, he turned stone into bread. This is not working. The promise God made is not coming to pass. I'm now 85, Sarah's now 75. The whole thing looks every day even more impossible than it was yesterday. So we'll work something out. And they turn stone into bread. Now, having got the real thing, the promise of Isaac, God tests him. Abraham, do you really, really, Really? Trust me with this? Then take Isaac. He's the real deal. But offer him in sacrifice. The next verse says, early the next morning, Abraham left. I remember once speaking about Abraham and I, I said in my message, early the next morning, Abraham got up and left. It shows you how enthusiastically he obeyed what God told him to do. And my wife said to me afterwards, I think you've got that wrong. The reason why he got up early and left was so that he wouldn't have to explain to Sarah what they were doing. Well, that's a mother's perspective, but she's probably right. You know, it wasn't going to work to say, Sarah, just give Isaac a kiss. I'm taking him up the mountain today. I'm going to offer him in a sacrifice. So just say goodbye. <laughs> I said to my wife, so you meant, meant that Sarah would be lying in bed when Abram got up, you know? The wife sleeps on, is that right? But the, the point is, he got up the next morning. He didn't delay it. Took some servants. They went on a three-day journey, got to the foot of the mountain, and uh, Abraham said to his servants, I and the lad will go up the mountain to worship. The first time the word worship ever occurs in the Bible. I remember when I grew up hearing somebody talk about what he called the law of first mention. He said, if you don't know what something means in the Bible, find out where it first occurs. <laughs> and uh, it doesn't always work, but it's a good rule of thumb 
look for the first mention, the, the, the law of first mention, he called it. And the first time the word worship occurs is here. And they went up the mountain. And what did, what did Isaac say to Abraham? He said, we have the, the, the wood and we have the fire, but we don't have the lamb. Where's the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide a lamb. But, but when we think about worship, we would say things like, well, we, we have the, the keyboards and we have the guitar, but where's the drum? Because that to us is what is worship, you know, it's music, singing. Now, you look carefully at this story for a definition of worship. It's Abraham taking his son up the mountain. And I'm sure when Isaac said, where is the lamb? And he said, God will provide the lamb. I'm sure his, his heart broke as he looked at his, as God called him, your son whom you love, as though to put salt in the womb. You love this little boy. Hebrews tells us that Abraham, on that journey, was so intent on going through this that he said, even if God has to raise him from the dead, I will obey him. And uh, when he, God, as you know, onto the mountain and bound him and took the knife and was ready to plunge the knife into Isaac, fully intended to do so. Suddenly, God said, Abraham, don't lay a hand on the boy. Now I know you fear God. And by the way, that's the first time the Bible ever speaks of fearing God. You want a definition for fearing God, go to this story as well. It is complete obedience, irrespective of the consequences. The consequences of my obedience will seem to destroy everything I believe God had for me. Now I know you fear God, and you remember there was a lamb caught in a thicket, and they took it and offered it Instead, and Abraham brought Isaac back down the mountain. He had passed the test. But the test, the issue that Abraham had to test uh, here, Abraham was tested over here, was not so much, do you trust God, but can God trust you to trust God? Will you let God take you into a situation that seems to be completely opposed to everything he ever promised you? And there are times in our lives when God clears the decks of our lives. There are things that we find our meaning and security in, and he sort of clears the decks, takes them all away. I'm telling you something from my own experience. Uh, nothing to do with Abraham's kind of testing, of course. Uh, but the same principle, I think it was. When I had studied at a Bible college in, in Glasgow, in Scotland, and I had uh, graduated, I wasn't totally sure what I should do. I knew, I felt God had called me to preach. I'd done a lot of preaching on weekends and things. And when I came towards the end of my time there, 
I found that my summer had filled up with opportunities to speak at youth camps and one or two so evangelistic missions and that kind of thing. So I thought, well, I, I was asking God, what is it you want me to do all the time? And, and nothing had been clear. And I, I went through the summer. And I thought maybe at the end of the summer, I've finished all these camps and things. Uh, I'll have some clarity. And when I got in the summer, the fall had filled up. And uh, so I thought, well, I'll just, just keep going. Uh, I didn't want to work independently. I wanted to be part of a, a fellowship or a team or something. And by November of that year, I had six invitations from six different organizations to consider working with them. Three of them were evangelistic organizations. They wanted me to be part of their, their team, be an evangelist in their organization. Uh, two of them were, were pastoral situations, working with, with local churches. And uh, one of them was part administration, part Bible teaching. And all six of them had attractive elements to them. And I wasn't sure which of these six was right. So I went to see a very wise man who I knew. And I said to him, you know, I, I, I've got these six possibilities one of them is right, but I don't know which one. I, I like them all for different reasons. Uh, how do I discern which of them is right? And he said to me, tell me about each of them. So I did. And then he said, uh, probably none of them is right. I said, why do you say that? He said, he said because if you're saying, should I be an evangelist? Should I be a pastor? Should I be an administrator? Should I be a teacher? Uh, you clearly don't have a vision of what your life is supposed to be. I said, what do you mean by that? And he said to me, look at the key people in the Bible. And he gave me examples, like Abraham went off, not knowing where he was going, but he had a vision. You're going to have a son eventually, and from that summer combination. He talked about Saul when he met the Lord on the Damascus Road. And he was told he's going to suffer and take the gospel of the Gentiles. And years later, Saul said, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision when he was talking to King Agrippa. And he said, what you need is a vision from God. I said, how do I get a vision from God? He said, that's up to you. That's between you and God. There's no formula for it. Ask God to give you a vision. Well, I didn't know what to do about that, but I thanked him and I left him. I spent a whole day with him. And that was kind of the end of it. Uh, I wasn't sure if it had been helpful or not, but I, I went away for three days on my own. Uh, I knew a Christian conference center. I said, do you have an, a spare room I can have for three days? I don't want to be involved in anything. I just want to be totally alone. And uh, I, I want to try and discern, okay, is there a vision God is giving me for my life? And I, I, I didn't know how to, to even discern that, but a verse that became important to me was a verse in Psalm 37, verse 4. It says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. There's a wrong way and a right way to read that verse. The wrong way is, delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you whatever you want. That's the wrong way to read it. Delight yourself in the Lord, and the desires of your heart will be given you by God. That's the right way to read it, I think. So I took that verse, and I thought, okay, if I could write my own story of the next 20, 30, 40 now it's 50 years. <laughs> if I could write my story, 
for the next decades of my life. What would I really love to do on the basis, what are the desires God has put into my heart? And I spent those few days, I walked for miles and miles. I just had a Bible, I had a notebook, and uh, I would walk and think and pray and sit down and read some scriptures and I'd make some notes. And I thought, if I could write my own story, what would I write? And I began to list down a whole group of things. And then at the end of those three days, I, I reduced it to a list of six main bullet points. If I could write my life story, I would love it to involve these things. Because I love those things. And uh, I went back home. I looked at these six alternatives that I had. And I measured them against this grid of six things I'd written down. And none of them fitted them. And I remember writing a letter. These are back in the days when you wrote proper letters <laughs> and posted them in the mailbox. <laughs> and, and I went down to the mailbox near my home and I, I put four of them in easily. I knew those weren't right. I kept on two. I thought maybe I'll just keep these as a backup in case nothing else works out. Uh, and then I remember suddenly I just pushed them in and they were gone. And I felt a whole weight had gone off my my back, all the doors that were being opened to me, I had now closed and put the mail into the mailbox and I couldn't get it back. And I went back to my home feeling free. I was then gonna go up to Scotland to speak in the first week of January for some meetings. And from where I lived down in the south, uh, Cape and Ray Hall, for those of you who who know the whole torchbearer story. This is not news, but some of you I know are new to torchbearers here. I've talked to one of you. Cape Hall is the place where Major Ian Thomas started a, an evangelistic center, became a Bible school, but that wasn't the original intent, and conference grounds and so on. And Cape was like a second home to me. And, uh, and I contacted Cape and said, I'm going up, can I call in for two nights on the way? There's another couple of nights there. So I did. And uh, the first night I, I went to bed and I was uh, asleep when somebody knocked on my door, one of the leaders there, and said, tomorrow morning, Alan Redpath, who Peter referred to before, was, is due to speak at the morning service the next day. But he's got the flu. He's just called us and said, I don't think I can preach. So, so would you speak? Instead, I thought, I can't speak at Cape May. Cape May was on a big pedestal to me. Uh, and uh, I said, uh, Major Thomas is here. He was home at Christmas and New Year. He was usually away. Why doesn't he speak? No, no, he asked if you would speak. He asked me to come and ask you. So I said, okay. I didn't um, sleep the rest of the night. I prepared a message, preached fumblingly. Afterwards, uh, as I was leaving the commissar, Major Thomas said, uh, come and have a cup of tea with me this afternoon. So I went to his, his office. And he said, what are you doing with your life? I said, I'm not sure at the moment. And he said, how do you like to work with us? Well, Capeman was on a big pedestal. I never, I never seriously ever thought I'd, I'd work there. I said, what do you have in mind? And this is absolutely true. He gave me 
six things, and they were the things on my paper. And I, I, I said to him, you know, I've been away for three days recently, and I made a list of things I felt my life should include, and this is what I wrote down. And he said, well, it's in a different order, and it's got some different language, but it's basically what I just said to you. I said, yeah, I know that. He said, well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? I said, yeah, I suppose it is. He said, well, let's backtrack it to midnight last night, which was actually December 31st. Let's backtrack it to midnight last night and say, as of midnight last night, you're, on, you're in the Cape Marie team. He said, uh, I'm not going to give you a written job description because it's only two words long. And you need to remember it. Preach Christ. If you stop doing that, we won't want you. That's your job. Whatever opportunity God gives you, preach Christ. Preach Christ. Second thing about salary, there's nothing to write down because we don't have any money. So God will meet your need. If we have some spare money, we'll send you some once in a while. And about six weeks later, he did send me some money and I sent it back. And I said, no, I'm enjoying not having to, not, not drawing a salary. And then I, I stayed at Cape May for 26 years and I didn't draw a salary because we, we trusted God. Of course, I was traveling and speaking, so people would give me honorariums and so on. But we had the great delight of seeing us down to the last penny sometimes and then we never ran out, never ran out. But as I look back, I'm so glad that I came to that point. I had those six things and I, I cleared them. I felt no, none of them is right, but what is right, I don't know. I didn't know what fitted those six things. And I felt God led us to a point there at which I had to say, God, I, I'm not going to keep any backups. <laughs> I'm going to clear the ground completely and trust you the right time and the right place and didn't expect it to be what happened with only a, a couple of weeks after that. And I knew from that moment I was in the right place at the right time because I'd been through that process. And I think God had tested me. So there's spiritual resources sometimes, you know. What, what, what is God doing? By the way, that verse, like yourself, Lord, he gives you the desires of your heart. Uh, I'd say to those of you who are students here and you deciding what is your future, I would say to you, ask God to give you a vision for your future. And don't be afraid of saying, this is what I really want to do. Because sometimes people say, is this my will or is it God's will? The answer to that is, it may be both. It is your will, because it's God's will. Because you delight yourself in the Lord and he puts the desires into your heart. So it's your will, because it's his will, he's put that desire into you. I remember talking to a student once at Cape May some years ago and I said, what, what are you doing with your life? He said, I'm not sure. Is there anything you'd like to do? He said, yeah, I'd like to be a pilot. I said, why don't you be a pilot? If that's what you'd like to do. He said, because it's what I want to do. It's not what God wants to do. I said, well, how do you know it's not what God wants you to do? He said, because it's what I want to do. <laughs> And I said, well, maybe it's what you want to do because it's what God wants to do. He put the desire into your heart. I told him that verse. And he said, no, 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 I want to do this before I became a Christian. I said, but God was your creator before he was your savior. He said to Jeremiah, when Jeremiah said, I'm not fit, look, who made you? I formed you in the womb. Who gave you your mouth? I gave you everything you are. I wired you in as your creator 
for the purpose for which I will use you when I become your savior. So those two aren't in conflict. Oh, I never thought about that. He said, that's exciting. You mean I can be a pilot? Well, you know, lots of checks and balances, but why not follow that road and see where it goes? He lived in Chicago and he became a pilot with United Airlines through 747s when they had them. And uh, it's the desire God put into his, that was in his heart. You trust God for that. Because I meet so many conscientious young Christians who want to do the will of God who assume it'll be what I don't want to do. You ever feel? If I say, God, you can show me what I will do in my life, you probably say, what's the last thing in the world you want to do? Okay, be a dentist. You know, I'm sorry if you're a dentist, but that's not what I would do in my life. Looking down people's throats, conversations like that, you know. It's the last thing I want to do. I remember once I was in a, a school in England talking to the Christian group there. And at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the meeting, I was chatting to somebody when a girl came up to me and said, look what you've done to my friend. And there was a girl sitting on a seat crying. And I said, what have I done? She said, you've upset my friend. So I went and sat next to her and I, I said, can I help you? She said, I don't know. So I said, uh, are you a Christian? I thought, that's a good place to start. And she said, um, no, I'm not. So I said, oh, that's why she's crying. She wants to be a Christian. Would you like to be one? No, 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 I don't. Oh, okay, you're not a Christian. No, you don't want to be one. No, I'm scared of becoming one. I said, why is that? Because I'm scared if I become a Christian, God will make me be a missionary or something and have to go to Africa. I said, do you want to go to Africa? I said, no, I don't. Well, well, leave that. Don't worry about that. He's it's you he wants first. Anyway, we talked and talked and, and, and she, she came to the Lord. She gave her life to the Lord. And... Uh, Later, she came to Cape and Ray. Because in those situations, I always say, give me your name and address. And I just drop my line once or twice and just try and keep in touch. Anyway, she came to Cape and Ray. And why I tell you that story is because she met a guy, married him, and they went as missionaries to Africa. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's a good story. <laughs> because God works in us, remember, to will and to act according to good pleasure. That's Philippians 2, verse 13. He works in us to will, and then to act according to his good pleasure. Let him do that, and don't be afraid of what the will in you is saying, because he'll lead you in that way. I got slightly off track there. Spiritual resources, we run out of. What's the time? It's, oh, it's time. Quickly, emotional resources. I, why I say this is this. I've seen a lot of young people trip over the fact I want to get married. You know, when God created Genesis 1, he said every day God saw what he'd made and it was good. God saw it was good. 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 Six times it was good. On the seventh day, God saw that it was very good. 
So everything is very good, as good as God can make good good, but before the fall ever took place, something was not good. Genesis 2 was not good for man to be alone. And it was very good, it was not good for man to be alone. This was his intention. He created people as social beings and spiritual beings, uh, and sexual beings. We need social interaction. We are created as sexual beings. And it was very good that it's not good for man to be alone. But suppose you haven't met the right person and you're already 22 years old. You know that feeling? Or 42 years old. I didn't meet my wife, Hillary, until I was 27. When I was 25, all my friends were getting married. And I was going to weddings and on my own. I was best man for three of them. <laughs> and I remember praying, saying, God, I don't like this. I'm getting lonely. I had a very good friend, and we used to do everything together. We'd go off and take vacation together. Then he got married, and he didn't want to go on vacation with me anymore. <laughs> I said, I don't like this. I'd love to get married, but I don't know what your will is. I, I'm going to assume you do want me to get married. I presume whoever she is, she, she's alive right now, otherwise there'll be a big age gap. I'll have to, I'll have to wait a long time. <laughs> and I asked God to show me, if this person is anywhere, would you, would you please uh, lead me to her? And I asked God to show me how to pray for whoever she might be. And, and I said, and, and I, I used to in those days, I had a prayer, a little book you saw it, and I, I wrote down, give me a sense of how I should pray for her. And I sensed that she wasn't a Christian. So I prayed God would save her. I prayed that he would <coughs> preserve her and look after her. When I met Hillary later, she, she wasn't a Christian at that stage. There was one period when I sensed, because I used to just pray for this. I didn't pray. How do I put it? That she'd be my wife. I, I prayed, this person, that you will preserve her and bring her to a knowledge of yourself and so on, and help her grow in you. But I, I had a, there was a period when I felt that she was in trouble. <coughs> and it proved to be true later on when I got to know her. Her parents' marriage broke up. That was the turbulent time. And uh, I prayed for her for two or three years, not knowing who she might be. And one day I came back to Cape Mary Hall, where I was then living, and I came in and walked down the corridor, and there was a, a girl who had come to work for the university vacation period. And I, I passed her. I said hello to her. She said hello to me. 
And I wrote to my best friend that night and said, I think I've met the girl I'm going to marry. <laughs> but I don't know her name. <laughs> and I didn't know her name. I just passed on the cord and I felt something click. That's the girl. When I got to know her, I discovered she had a boyfriend. So I put him on my, on my prayer list. <laughs> with a, a boot next to him. And then I heard that he had gone off the scene. And then another boy stepped in. I watched her go through three boyfriends. And I gave up, oh, this is crazy, this is not right, because she wasn't in the slightest bit interested in me. I, I invited her to come and lead the sports program at Cape May during the summer, because I was looking after the summer program then, and come and lead the sports program. I thought that would be a great way to get to know her. But she had another boy then. Uh, anyway, I won't give you all the details. <laughs> It, it, it took her a while to see the light. <laughs> our, our kids say, your story is so unusual. <laughs> but I, I, I got tempted, look elsewhere, but I sensed she was right for a number of reasons. Not, not least what I sensed was in her soul. And I sensed what was in her soul was something very deep and rich. She'd been through a lot of pain, and that often is what makes people rich inside. Learn to navigate it. She had no Christian background uh, at all. In fact, when she went to university, she became a Christian because she dated a backslidden Christian boyfriend who one day took her to the Christian Union they used to have there. Uh, and that's where she became a Christian. Um, but we were 31 when I got married, when we got married. And uh, that was not in my planning earlier. I thought, oh, no, that's, I need to get married by about mid-twenties. <laughs> but it was, it was God in the right time. But I look back on that, I'm, I'm so glad that God didn't, I was going to say, give her me on a plate, you know what I mean? I'm not talking about John the Baptist's head, I'm talking about <laughs> that period of waiting. Because I could have turned stones into bread, you see. It would have been very easy to do that. Gone elsewhere, so to speak. Material resources, that's emotional resources. Trust God in the right time, in the right way. He will orchestrate the right thing. God doesn't always meet our material needs as we would like him to. You know, Paul wrote, God, my God will meet all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. But Paul had a very tough time when a lot of needs didn't seem to be met. And I'll finish with this, but in Second Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 25, he's, he's talking about some false apostles, pseudo-apostles he calls them, and they're saying Paul's not a real apostle because things don't go well for him. They have this kind of prosperity idea. If you're an apostle of God, he'll make everything smooth for you. And Paul contrasts himself with them in in Segments 11, verse 23, Are they servants of Christ? 
in brackets, I'm out of my mind to talk like this, but I am more. I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Interesting, isn't it? He says, uh, how many times have, uh, have they been in prison? Huh? How many times? I've been there more often than they have. How many times have they been, been uh, flogged? I've been flogged more severely than them. How, many, uh, how hard have they worked? I've worked harder than them. Then he gives some, some details. He says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. That's 39 lashes for those whose arithmetic isn't very good. And that was uh, 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 several strands of leather whip attached to one handle, pieces of bone tied into it. Every time the, 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 the lashes came against the body of the victim, it would break the skin and pull chunks of flesh out. That after a 39 lashing, apparently the person was unrecognizable to who they are. And Paul says, I've had that five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. That's just sticks, just beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. We know about that. In Lystra, they left him for dead. Obviously concussed, but he came around. And it says, and he went back into the city. <laughs> if I was him, I would have gone the opposite direction. Paul went back into the city and said, ladies and gentlemen, I was saying something very important when, when I got interrupted. <laughs> Let me finish. <laughs> and uh, I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And that doesn't include the times we know about in the book of Acts. This was written before that. So it looks as though most times Paul went on a boat and sank. <laughs> I mean, why didn't God look after him better? If I was one of Paul's colleagues, I'd say, which boat are you going on, Paul? Okay, I'll come on the next one. I'll look out for you. Wear a red belt, and then I'll see you. <laughs> I'm glad he wasn't alive in the days of aviation. But, but this is the man who says, my God will supply all your needs, and his boats keep sinking. I spent a night and day in the open sea, not just the convenience of sinking on the shoreline. In the open sea, I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the city, in the country, in danger at sea, <coughs> in danger from false brothers. I think it was in danger. <laughs> I've labored and taught. I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. There have been days there's been no food on my table, he says. I've been cold and naked. He doesn't tell us how that came about, but there have been times I've been naked. No clothes. Maybe he was in the bathtub on the boat when it sank one day and he swam away with nothing. <laughs> Embarrassing for a, a apostle, isn't it? Huh? And besides everything else, if I stay in the pressure, my concern for the truth. Who's weak? Don't I feel weak? Who's led into sin that I inwardly burn? He said, listen, the evidence of my being an apostle is not that everything goes well. But I discover God to remain constant and real when everything is going wrong. And all these things going wrong kept stripping him of any sense of self-sufficiency or I'm better than the other people or I'm, you know, more important than the next person. God has to keep reduce, pulling that away from underneath us if we're tempted to think that way. And as he said later to the Philippians, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. 
That means I can live in any situation because my security is not in myself, it is Christ who is my security. And that's why God can strip me of all these other comforts to keep me clinging to Christ alone. We sing that beautiful song, In Christ Alone. My hope is found. We don't really believe that. We want Christ plus lots of comforts and blessings and benefits and ease. And going back to Jesus being tested by the Father, he is testing his attitude to resources. Taken to the 40th day with no food, and the devil comes and says, turn the stone to bread. Make life easier for yourself. You're at the end. You're exhausted. And he didn't. The father tested his son's attitude to his resources because he knew the day would come when he would hang on a Roman cross seemingly without resources and the crowd will come by and say if you are the son of God does that ring a bell by the way isn't that exactly what the devil said to him if you are the son of God three times he said that to him now the crowd say if you are the son of God come down from the cross and the father knew Although, as Matthew's Gospel tells us, he could draw on 12 legions of angels, that's 72,000 angels, he could have asked the Father for 72,000 angels and zapped them all. But the Father knew he would stay there. And even when he cried, my God, why have you forsaken me? And entered the very atmosphere of separation from God, which is the penalty for sin. And that's when he endured it. Why have you forsaken me? He knew his son would stay there to the bitter end. He tested him. And he will test you and me. We're all different. Our lives are different. Our experiences are different. But some of us, if we're not careful, and I know this in one or two areas in my life where I have failed the test, in that I took the easy way out. And God has to come back again and test you again. Because if he's going to endure us with power, he's got to know you have no agenda of your own in this. No agenda of your own. You've been tested. And you go all the way. Well, look at the other two areas tomorrow morning but let's pray together I don't know what's going on in your life right now we're here in this beautiful environment in this beautiful company with this great atmosphere but in the secret corner of your own life there may be some massive struggles going on and battles Will you just stay with the Lord Jesus in that struggle? Just stay with him.
until he brings you through it. Don't cut the corners. Because it may be comfortable, but there'll be no power in your life. There'll be no liberty of the Spirit in your life. And Lord, I pray for any here who are in areas of struggle, some of us who are older, things in our families, in our work situation, in our personal lives, those of us who are younger, maybe in our families too, in the uncertainties of our futures, in the, in the temptations that we battle with, the addictions that we struggle with, we pray, Lord Jesus, we know what it is to stay true to you, knowing that you will preserve us in these situations as we trust you and obey you, that you will preserve us and you'll cause our lives to be an avenue of power. Make this real for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.